You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, we need to talk about some scheduling issues. Oh boy. As we sit here to record this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, which I believe, without looking, is episode 286. Jesus, how is that possible? Agreed. It's Monday, December 18th. Okay. Next Monday, the day that we would normally record Co-Main Event Podcast episode number 287, happens to be Christmas. So what time should I show up? You go ahead and show up whenever you want. All right. The door like will usual, be, then. The door will be locked. Okay. Uh, I'll probably have the windows boarded up prior to your arrival. All right. Don't act like I can't get into your house at any time. No, I'm. you're the one person I trust with my spare key. <laughs> That's mistake number one right there. In truth, though, uh, we won't be recording a traditional episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast for next week. True. But we do have something a little special planned. <laughs> Don't undersell it, Chad. We have something a lot special planned. I mean, provided that we can get our shit together to actually record it and then put it on the internet. See, that's always the the part of it that makes it exciting for everybody, because who knows if we'll get our shit together. But I like our chances on this one, and I feel like everybody out there is in for a treat one way or another. Yeah, without giving away too many spoilers, I think we can say that the 2017 Co-Main Event Podcast Christmas special is going to it's gonna be a doozy, and the kids at home aren't going to want to miss it. Yeah. You're going to want to carve out some some special listening time for this. Because of that, though, we're going to be doing double duty this week and both wrapping up UFC on Fox 26 and looking ahead to UFC 219, which is obviously on December 30th. Uh, and then the week after that, I'm going to be out of town through that following Monday, which I believe is January. Is that January 1st? I don't know, man. January 2nd? I get back to I town guess it would Tuesday. Be January. Okay. So uh, the... Episode 288 of the Co-Main Event Podcast may be uh, postponed a day or so. What are you doing that's so great? Going out of town with my family. Where are you going? Taking all three kids on a trip. Why are you being so secretive about it? We're going to Portland. Oh, are you driving? Yes. Uh, How many children of yours do you think will throw up on the way? Uh, We've had a really pukey time here lately. Uh, so I'm hoping we get it all out of our system before we actually get in the uh, in the car seats. Which you're hoping it'll just be dry heaves, then they'll just be too dehydrated to puke over the eight hour drive to Portland. Yeah, uh, kind of astounding when you think that it's 2017 and we still have not engineered car car seat straps that you can clean puke out of in any real workable way. Yeah, no, it's a nightmare. Your kid pukes in the car seat, and those straps are going to smell like puke for a couple weeks. We'll see, and also. I have, it seems with my oldest at least, age, aged out of the era where I could convince her that Dramamine was a car candy that she gets to take oh, wow. on long car trips. Uh, yeah, that doesn't work anymore. That's interesting. I, have to, I haven't thought of it. My kids still uh, 
would line up to take quote unquote tasty medicine if I offer it to him. <laughs> so we're still that's still in our wheelhouse. Maybe we'll give that a try. Yeah, car candy. This week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Uncaged. We've been telling you and telling you that Uncaged is card for card the greatest MMA game ever. It's a physical two-player MMA-themed card game for people who love martial arts, fighting video games, and strategy card games like poker or Magic the Gathering. Choose from a growing cast of international fighters and fighting styles from all over the world and put them to work putting the beat down on your opponent. That's right, Chad. Uncaged plays similarly to arcade fighting games like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, but uses cards instead of buttons and a joystick to play. Players can select from a growing list of technique cards to punish their opponents with counter punches and body shots. Upcoming expansions are going to add even more styles and techniques, which will make an already great user experience even better. Uncaged features a fast pace of play and great artwork on every card, making a hit for casual or hardcore fans of card games, fighting games, and or combat sports. Go online to uncaged-cards.com to get your order in for the holidays. It might be a little late to do that now. Uh, if you, It makes a great kiss Christmas gift for MMA lover on your list, but remember, the only fighting style that matters is yours. We got music again this week from our friend, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear on the show, you can check out more from him on Twitter at The Fifth Element at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. That's the letter A in the word the. Of course it is. Three rounds as usual this week in the Coming Event Podcast and round number one. Remember last week when I said that every time Rafael Dos Anjos fights, I remember all over again how good he is? Yep, still true. And in round number two, hey, speaking of which, the charming rogues gallery of the UFC welterweight division might just be the best thing happening in MMA right now. And in round number three, on December 30th, Holly Holm takes on an unbeatable women's champion in the biggest fight of her career. Sound familiar? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dawson Ellsworth. Is that the uh, the title character from Dawson's Creek? Or is it the uh, the widower who uh, tries to date the the uh, the woman on Deadwood, Mister Ellsworth? <laughs> yes. Remember him? Yeah. Could be either. Uh-huh. If this is a real name, Dawson Ellsworth. That's a person with a future. Yeah, props to you, my man. Yeah. That's, that's dying to have an Esquire after it. At that's point. right. You're going places. Dawson Ellsworth writes, Tragic news spread in the MMA world after Robert Follis's death this week. Just wondering if you guys had any personal memories of Robert or anything to add about the guy. Seemed to be a very well-liked man in the fight world. So this news, uh, Ben, which is obviously unexpected and tragic, as, as Dawson Ellsworth points out, uh, kind of broke over the weekend that long-time... Team Quest coach Robert Follis uh, had died, and we had a, a a news update on the story today from both MMA Junkie and MMA Fighting saying that the coroner uh, down there in Nevada had ruled the death a suicide. Um, so all of that obviously is heartbreaking for all of the people that knew him and uh, a sobering reminder to the rest of us, uh, just, you know, just about how fragile life can be and and you know a guy in robert fallis who by all accounts uh was always very upbeat very accommodating uh the kind of guy that i've seen it said a couple places elsewhere nobody really had a bad thing to say about which in the mma world is kind of a a unique thing uh so to have a, a guy like that take his own life obviously um just reminds us to uh that that every everybody can go through hard times and that you know if if you feel like 
you are experiencing some depression or, or downtimes in your mental health, you should reach out and try to get some help because obviously uh, bad things can happen if you don't. Yeah. Did you see the uh, Instagram post from Randy Couture about it? Uh, uh, I did. I don't. I don't think I read the whole thing. Well, yeah. I think it was last night, and he in it referenced the, that he had taken his own life, and he he made a reference too that uh, he. I think what he how he put it was that uh, Robert's bro- Robert had been in the same space after uh, something similar happened with his brother, and then now all his friends and family were in that same space uh, after this. And that apparently from what I heard that this, that something like this had happened with his brother a couple of years ago. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that it is really, it's on one hand, it's surprising because if you knew him, he was really upbeat and positive. He was, I would describe him as intense. You know, uh, I spent a few days with him in Las Vegas and I did a story about how he had been brought on at extreme couture to try to bring that team back a little bit and had been really successful at extreme couture. And then uh, there was a story that just, you know, within the last couple months or so, he had left Extreme Couture. And I don't want to say it was like, sounded like an acrimonious parting exactly, but it did sound like, you know, kind of a, a split that had to happen because of the way things were moving there. Uh, and, you know, it always, I guess when something like this happens and you'll always see people be like, well, I can't understand, like, I can't understand why anybody would do that or how, uh, how that would possibly happen. And I guess I feel like, I don't really need to know that much about your life, and I can I can understand how it can happen. It could be hard hard thing to be a human being, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's really sad for everybody who knew him and everybody kind of like left behind, wondering like why and and why this had to happen. Uh, but I also, I, I guess, I just wish that people would uh, see the flip side of it a little more and just be, realize like. You don't know what anybody else is going through at any given time. Stuff like this is kind of a good reminder of that. Like, because you see him from the outside, you would think, okay, he's like a just a super positive, like constant motivational speaker mode almost. And you, it's easy, I think, to forget about those kinds of people, especially that like they might have their own battles they're going through, and you just don't notice it or think about it because they seem to be constantly helping everybody else with their battles. Yeah, I didn't know Robert Fallis personally, aside from just saying hello to him a couple of times before, but. You know, as a guy who grew up and got into, like, became a mixed martial arts super fan largely because of the emergence of Randy Couture, uh, Team Quest obviously always loomed really large in this region of the country, and, you know, Fallis was there for about 10 years. So, like, I don't think it's an overstatement to say he was kind of an icon of the, like, at the very least, Pacific Northwest MMA scene, uh, and then obviously uh, Team Extreme Couture relocated down there to Vegas, but, like... That whole team with with Randy Couture and and Dan Henderson and Chael Sonnen and Chris Lieben and all of the other guys that came out of there uh, were a really were all really huge figures in this area of the country. So and and I would say Robert Fallis was like was one of those guys. Like even though he we didn't know him as a professional fighter, he he certainly loomed large, maybe as large as some of the rest of those guys, just because he seemed like the kind of guy that was always around. And if you went to UFC events back during the Extreme Couture heyday, uh, he was one of those guys that was sort of like, uh, you would just see him everywhere. Kind of like a John Hackleman. You go down there to Vegas when Chuck Liddell was fighting, you were going to run into John Hackleman like 10 times, guaranteed. Uh, So yeah, super sad that that he has passed away. Uh, And I think all of us that have struggled with depression or substance abuse or anything else uh, feel extreme empathy for those those kinds of uh, situations because uh, it can kind of happen to to anybody if you are prone to that to that kind of thinking. Yeah. 
All right. Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, why do you guys think the MMA versus pro wrestling beef keeps uh, reigniting every year or so? Recently, it's been Shayna Baszler and Chase Sherman taking shots from across the aisle, and it just seems like time is a flat circle when it comes to a pointless this pointless fan fight. Are fighters slash performers just trying to put themselves over, or do you think that there is something deeper at play? Please discuss. Uh, this also, I think, references Daniel Cormier kind of getting right, into it yeah. with uh, with the Young Bucks, some of the... Uh, some some big time stars of the independent professional wrestling scene uh this past i guess it was last night that this happened that uh um over a, a particular spot of action that has become controversial on the internet although what's I, what's, I this, what's that spot it's like a it's like a it's a professional wrestling match i think there's it might it must have been a six man tag cuz i think there's six guys in the ring all at once and it's like a multiple drop kick spot where everybody's doing drop kicks at the same time. And like, uh, it popped the crowd, the live crowd while they were there, but it's also the kind of thing where like, when you watch it, there's no way that it could exist without being really, uh, precisely choreographed. So old school wrestling people like Jim Cornette kind of are going to freak out about that stuff because you're not protecting the business, man. <laughs> you're not protecting the business. Right. You know, I, I kind of agree with Andrew Millington that it does seem like time is a flat circle here with this stuff. And I feel the same way about the MMA versus boxing debate that will pop up every once in a while and gain steam every once in a while. But at least that one I understand a little more because uh, the the sports, like what's actually taking place inside the action, is a lot more similar between MMA and, and boxing. And it seems like there's more audience overlap between MMA and pro wrestling. But you would think that just especially with the way pro wrestling is now, where they no longer try to act like it's not scripted, uh, they it, it seems even more pointless now. Because the you're acknowledging that what the products are is so completely different. I, I It is kind of baffling to me. And as far as the question of, like, are they just trying to put themselves over? I would say the pro wrestlers, yeah are just trying to put themselves over. They seem a little better about like recognizing opportunities to do that. Uh, MMA fighters, I think it depends on the fighter. Sometimes I think that, you know, with a guy like Daniel Cormier, where I'm like, all right, he's a pro wrestling fan. He's passionate about pro wrestling, so he's going to have like his opinions on it. And just like anybody else's opinion, just that he happens to be UFC light heavyweight champion, so it carries a little more weight and can get a response and, and kick off this debate. Um, but I, I kind of don't understand why it would ever get into this like MMA versus pro wrestling thing because there, there is, it's like baseball versus carrots basically. Like there is no versus there because they're just not even remotely the same. Well, I mean, MMA and professional wrestling share a common lineage. Uh, the rise of MMA on pay-per-view is like largely coincides with the decline of professional wrestling on pay-per-view. I feel like it's a kissing cousins kind of situation or like, uh, that cousin that you have that like the two of you get into it a lot. Like make out. Are we still talking about kissing cousins or what? Let's say uh, feuding cousins. Okay. Or maybe kissing cousins wasn't the, uh, All right. wasn't the right uh, still, analogy. Yeah. But you know, the cousin, like you get into it with members of your family, you kind of like have issues with them. And then, but then someone outside your family comes up to you and is like, man, your cousin is bullshit. And you're like, fuck you, man. That's my cousin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay. You can talk shit about each other. But then you get mad if an outsider comes in and tries to start anything 
with members of the group. I feel like it's kind of like that with professional wrestling and mixed martial arts where there's this like uneasy relationship that no one wants to uh, believe exists, but at the same time does exist. And so like for whatever reason, it's just kind of like a, a an uneasy relationship where everyone is too emotionally close to the situation to judge it accurately. Uh, and you're right with, with Daniel Cormier, just sort of like being a long time professional wrestling fan. Like he tosses out an opinion that I guarantee he didn't like think was going to be controversial. Uh, and then the professional wrestling guys who, like you said, either understand how to seize on the moment to try to get themselves some free publicity and, or are just sort of feeling a little raw emotionally because they are on, uh, you know, the, the, the shorter end of the stick in terms of like current popularity or like capturing the current zeitgeist, I guess you would say. Uh, and maybe that's not even the right way to explain it, but it has always felt to me like MMA always felt like it had something to prove to boxing. And yeah. maybe that's why there is uh, a lot of arguably one-sided friction between MMA and boxing. And I feel like kind of the opposite of is true of professional wrestling and MMA, like professional wrestling always feels like it has something to prove to MMA. So there's that friction there. Well, and I think how often have we heard pro wrestlers, especially of like a certain generation be like, Oh, well, Hey, if MMA had been around when I was coming up, I definitely would have done that. Like, like almost as if they feel like, MMA kind of chips away at the tough guy cred of right. professional, well, wrestling professional wrestling. Professional wrestling is wrestlers. like fake fighting that's on pay-per-view and then the UFC came out and it was real fighting that was on pay-per-view and you know you can argue that they serve like different appetites since one of the reasons that professional wrestling is rigged is that it can be more exciting that way and in mixed martial arts you kind of get what you get because it's a legitimate sport but at the same time I feel like uh they are kind of there is a Venn diagram with okay. a, with an overlap I think there that uh, that sometimes doesn't make for the easiest possible relationship. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy, who writes, Ricardo Lamas's shocking loss to Josh Emmett has made me think hard about taking short-noticed fights. Firstly, why the fuck does anyone do it? These UFC cards uh, in a row, or three UFC cards in a row had one, and each one has backfired in its own way. I was trying to think of feel-good stories involved in taking short-notice fights and could only think of Lieben's crackerjack win over Sexy Yama and getting introduced to Lando Venata. Two, uh, been a shitty wild man for a decade, and all I could think of was two examples. You win a fight you're, uh, you are supposed to, and the world shrugs. You get starched by a nobody, and you become a gatekeeper. So outside of making a quick paycheck uh, and indulging the fighter ego, why risk so much for so little? If Lama smashed Emmett by unanimous decision, would we, would we be talking about it two days later? I'd wager 20 bucks I never wanted to see again that no one would even write about it. I can think of another one. Uh, remember when Donald Cerrone did it? Like in 2015, uh, I looked it up here. He fought twice in January, once against Miles Jury, beat him by decision at UFC 182. Then uh, later that same month, uh, fought Benson Henderson, beat him by decision at uh, the UFC fight night where Conor McGregor beat Dennis Seaver to punch his ticket to a title shot. So, yeah, but that's another one. But I also kind of had to search my memory banks for that one. Right, and I think to say if you're lacking feel-good stories about short-notice fights, you're definitely only thinking about it from one point of view, right? If you're Josh Emmett, there's a pretty pretty goddamn feel-good story. Go out there and rock, knock out Ricardo Lamas. Right. Well, as for the question of, like, why do people do it, uh, because I understand, like, all the, the points that Eric Murphy is trying to make here, the... You're right that it depends like on the perspective of why does somebody do it because 
for Josh Emmett, it's like, okay, hey, here's a, a great opportunity. It comes up out of nowhere. I mean, they pull goddamn Jose Aldo out of a fight, and you get to sub in for him. And if you go out there and you win, then that's pretty awesome for you. Uh, and the question, though, of like why would Ricardo Lamas do it is because really what choice does he have? You know, he, he's in there against a former champion first in Jose Aldo. They take him out of the fight and they say, how about this guy who it's, there's really almost nothing for you to gain there except that you probably still need to fight and get paid. You've already invested money in your training camp. Uh, you also don't want to be the guy telling the UFC, no, screw you. I would rather not fight than take this fight because then you might be sitting down for a long time waiting for another fight. Maybe you need this just financially. Uh, and you want to get along, you know, you, you know how the UFC deals with people who, uh, offer too much dissent, especially when they're not on a firm enough ground to be able to, uh, stand there and do that. So it seems like I can understand why everybody did it, but that doesn't mean that it's a good deal for them. It's another situation that reminds us how stacked the deck is in this sport in favor of the promoter and, and like, away from the fighter, right? Because I would have to think that primarily this is a monetary decision. And if you are Ricardo Lamas, like you must feel like you have almost no other choice, right? Because first thing that happens is Jose Aldo gets pulled out. So you're probably already worried about uh, being able to make that show money or being able to get a win bonus at the, at, you know, in addition to that. And then uh, Josh Emmett comes in two and a half pounds over for this fight. Cause he's coming down from lightweight. On, on short notice, so I think like if right. you're going to have an excuse to miss weight. Yeah, okay, there it is. Right, and but both the instances same... of somebody missing weight at this event, um, the other fight that didn't even happen because of it, but both of them were the same thing, short notice fights. But if you're Ricardo Lamas, don't you feel like you're, you're kind of like double dog damned? Like yeah. First, you got to take the short notice opponent who's coming down from a bigger weight class, and then he doesn't even make 145. You got to be kind of thinking, well, god damn it. Well, and then except that you're a professional fighter, and so you're thinking, well, now I'm just going to have to knock him out anyway. But then you see the flip side, which we also saw at the same event. Danny Downs and I talked about a little bit about this week, how on the prelims where uh, Tim Elliott was supposed to, first was supposed to fight Justin Scoggins, he had a, a neck injury, uh, so he gets replaced by Pietro Menga, uh, who then doesn't even actually weigh in because he was going to come in so over, and then Tim Elliott wouldn't accept the fight. And look at the response to that. He doesn't accept the fight, and he complains about like the financial situation, that, that how he only got show money, didn't get uh, win money. Uh, and a bunch of fans will jump on you and say, well, hey, you had an opportunity. You turned it down. You should have just taken the fight. Uh, again, like, what what can you possibly do? Because if you do what Ricardo Lamas did and say, all right, well, I'm getting screwed and then screwed on top of that, uh, but I can't say no, so I'll go ahead and I'll take the fight anyway. Here's a situation where the guy, you know, took a stand and said, no, I'm not going to do that. I think that this is one too many, like, bad deals for me, and that works out badly for him in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I think we need to remember that this sport uh, came about at a time when there was very little regulation and very little oversight into like the organization of the sport. And because of that, uh, especially inside the UFC, it was sort of created at the whim and at the pleasure of the of the owners of the company. And so and we still see that today that like almost all of these situations uh, benefit the the promoter and and don't necessarily benefit the fighter and I think that sometimes it works out you know in favor of the fan because if you want to see Ricardo Lamas fight on this card clearly like it's better for us to see him go out there and fight Josh Emmett than to see him scratched from the card after Jose Aldo gets shuffled off and shuffled into that fight against Max Holloway but at the same time like that's also kind of like a 
bloodthirsty way to look at it. It's like you're as a spectator, you're putting your own enjoyment ahead of like the health, safety and and career of the athletes, which I think is is in some ways understandable from a fan perspective, but in other ways is like uh, kind of indefensible. Uh, and so I don't expect that to change, but I always like us all to just kind of be mindful of, of what's happening and to try to the best we can avoid doing that. Yeah. Last question this week comes to us from the cheeseburger walrus, our old pal. He writes 38 year old Glover Tashira rebounded from his mauling at the hands of Alexander Gustafson uh, by putting away Misha Sirkinov by first round TKO. He by no means looked great at all, but when he called out the winner of DC versus Uzdemir, uh, I couldn't help but think to myself, if not him, then who? And that therein is the uh, yeah is the defining question of the light heavyweight division right. at the moment. <laughs> and see, yeah, that that is the thing that highlights exactly where we are at 205 pounds. Because man, you you hear something like that, and your first thought is, oh no, no, come on, be serious, man. But then you start to run through the options in your mind. And you're like, well. I don't, I guess by default, maybe, uh, depending on what happens with a few other things, we could very well, uh, wind up there, uh, which is not exactly the same as somebody throwing their hat in the ring and everybody going, Oh yeah, that's a great idea. I'm super fired up about that fight. This is just, we, we want to say no, but we can't think of any better ideas. Shout out to Glover to for at least doing it in a humorous way. <laughs> right for going for like acknowledging the problem with the 205 pound division and basically turning to Daniel Cormier and being like, Hey man, we're both old. Let's do this one more time while we still can. Right. Let's get this done. Yeah. Also though, that moment where he kind of goes over there and is talking to Daniel Cormier again, highlights the weirdness for me of having like not only a current fighter, but like a current champion sitting there on the broadcast table because it's like, okay, he's got to call a fight of a guy who might be a future opponent. Then they're going to have this kind of like back and forth uh, where Daniel Cormier is, has to be like sitting there with, you know, forcing John Anik into an uncomfortable situation where he's like, John, you ever know me to call, to say no to anybody? And John Anik's going to be like, no, 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 of course not. And it's like, man, you want to talk about like pro wrestling? That takes on a pro wrestling feel when you have that kind of a situation like on the broadcast. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if a couple of breaks don't go your way at light heavyweight, this is what you could be looking at for like the conceivable near future. Right, like because man, if John Jones ends up suspended for a long time, uh, what else do you do? You know, one or two of those guys gets hurt or like thrown in jail if you're Vulcan Ozdemir and you got like assault charges pending or something. Man, the next thing you know, it, we're just like kind of going down the list, waiting for someone to not rule themselves out. Okay, uh, fightpass.com show idea. All right, me and you in the minivan scouring the nation. Looking for 205 pound prospects. Okay. Not even like guys that are necessarily fighting. We're like showing up at the coal mines. Yeah. And, and being like, who are your biggest dudes? Bus stops. Send us, yeah. send us guys who look like they could weigh 205 pounds if they were in, if they were in shape. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, I do think though that we might run into some problems because what we're going to do is we're going to cruise around there, right? And then, you know, I assume we're going to bring a scale everywhere we go, Chris Jericho style. Yeah, big Toledo with one of, with a giant arrow. It spins <laughs> yes. around when a guy gets on it. Yeah. Uh, but I also feel like once we adequately explain the situation to some of these guys, you know, at least 30 to 45% of them are going to be like, I don't know, I kind of like my chances at heavyweight. 
That's not what we're looking for. Though. No. We're looking for light heavy. I know. So if you want a seat in the van, <laughs> you got to be willing to try to get down to 205 pounds. I think we call it looking for a fighter. What do you think? All right. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't see any issues with that at all. I mean, it's, I'm, it's a joke, right? I'm saying this in jest, but it kind of does feel like there needs to be the, some kind of outreach or some kind of, uh, we're the 205 pound division is going to dry up and blow away unless we get some, some big dudes who are willing to come fight in it, which is a, a sad state of affairs for the weight class that was at one time, sort of like the jewel of the UFC. Uh, but, but yeah, man, it seems like we need a couple of enterprising dudes to just hit the road and find some fucking big swingers that can come do this. Yeah. Do we also get to like race go-karts and shock each other with tasers and stuff to fill time? Yeah. And just, we're going to eat, eat a bunch of good food. We're going to eat a bunch of, I eat at a bunch of restaurants. You know, though, I can't help but draw a parallel between this issue we're talking about right now. Where are all the, uh, 205 pound athletes willing to get an MMA and the issue we were just talking about, about how you sign a contract to fight and you don't know exactly what way you're going to get screwed until you actually show up at the venue. Seems like maybe those things are connected. And also, you'll be lucky to make the uh, NFL league minimum, right? Oh, extremely lucky. lucky. And forget about the pension that comes with the NFL league. And that doesn't even take into account that Ben Folks and Chad Dunnis are going to get 15% of your earnings moving forward <laughs> due right. to the nature of the contract that we're going to sign on the dashboard of the van <laughs> That's right. as you get in. That's right. We will have our lawyer, Chad's wife, look it over. Uh, and Via then Skype. Yeah. She's not coming with us. No, she's got more important things to do. Uh, and then we will really heavily pressure you into signing it. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you guys know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that gets you in touch with us. While you're there, sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all those days when we can't record the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's also really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Round one of this week's co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by our friends at Freshly. Freshly is the new meal delivery service that ships prepared fresh meals straight to your door. Freshly does all the prep, leaving you no shopping, no chopping, no cleanup. At this point, if you haven't gone online to check out Freshly, I'm not sure what you're doing with yourself. That's right, Chad. All you have to do is go to Freshly.com, sign up for one of their four different meal plans, select your meals for the week from the rotating menu, and Freshly sends them directly to you in a refrigerated box. Then all you have to do is just heat and eat. Each fresh meal is ready to go in about three minutes, so they're perfect for people who live their lives on the go. All the meals are fully prepared before you get them. You just have to heat them up. Freshly is an easy and convenient option for eating healthier every day, and it tastes great, too. A fridge full of fresh meals for the week. 
Hard to argue with that. Every meal freshly prepares is 100% all natural with no artificial flavors or preservatives, no refined sugar, and no gluten. On top of that, right now, Freshly is offering some real savings exclusively for co-main event podcast listeners. Just go to the website, Freshly.com, and use the promo code Main Event. that's Main Event, all one word, no spaces, no capitals, to not only get $20 off your first order, but $20 off your second order too. That's $40 in savings just for exclusively being a friend of the CME. Go on Freshly.com today and get started. So, Ben, three wins in a row now for Rafael Dos Anjos after moving up from lightweight uh, at the beginning of, actually in the middle of this year. So three pretty uh, pretty hasty wins, prompt wins. Really kind of turned things around entirely for himself. And I would say in the on the heels of this unanimous decision win over Robbie Lawler in the main event of UFC on Fox 26 on Saturday night, I would argue he's kind of the clear-cut number one contender at 170 pounds. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I agree with that. But I also feel like, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this more in the second round, things are so weird at 170 pounds that it's not exactly sure what it means to be the top contender at that weight class. Right? Well, yeah, but I mean, I think that's one of the things that is most meaningful about this win over Robbie Lawler is that you kind of came into this event without a real clear-cut challenger for Tyron Woodley. You had Stephen Thompson, uh, you know, Damian Maya, Masvidal, Darren Till, Colby Covington, Robbie Lawler, all kind of cross- clustered around the top 10 there. And then Rafael Dos Anjos, who is already ranked number four in this division, comes out there uh, and puts an impressive uh, one-sided kind of beatdown on Robbie Lawler. And I think uh, if there was uncertainty at 170 pounds before this, I think if nothing else, this this performance added a lot of clarity, at least in my mind. Let me ask you this about this win and, and how he looked in this win. Are you surprised, motherfucker? I mean, I just said last week, I'm fucking surprised every time Javier Dos Santos goes out there and fights. And at this point, I have no idea why. It's just like uh, I have a weird blind spot in my mind brain for this guy. And, and yet, like, every time I see him fight, I remember when he dismantled Donald Cerrone, like, two years ago at a UFC on Fox event, and he goes out there, beats a guy uh, via TKO in about a minute and six seconds, and I just came away from it being like, Jesus fucking Christ, this guy is good at fighting. And I kind of felt the same way uh, after this Robbie Lawler fight, especially watching him, you know, in some of these exchanges, just kind of teeing off on, on Lawler to the, to the head and to the body, uh, and just looking really, really proficient in all aspects of the game. And I just like, I guess I need to get it through my thick skull that, uh, Rafael Dos Anjos is one of the best fighters in the world at either of these weight classes. Yeah. I mean, especially because he has that ability to, uh, just kind of keep a high output at all times and then really crank it on and turn it up. And uh, the next thing you know, a couple times in this fight where he was just swarming Robbie Lawler, and you got the sense that if Robbie Lawler uh, were not basically a human cinder block, he might have been put away there. A lot, couple of those shots, one of those like jumping knees, thumps right off his head, and Robbie Lawler, like the expression on his face doesn't even change because he's Robbie fucking Lawler. But anybody else might have been in some serious trouble there. Uh, that, I think, is a good reminder of like all the different things that Rafael Dos Anjos can do well and why it's really difficult to pick out, like, here's a go-to game plan against him. Um, it made me think, though, about the – because my question coming into this fight was, can he do that? Can he uh, put on that kind of a pressure style against a guy like Robbie Lawler who can just kind of cover up and roll with the shots up against the fence and then throw one – hard punch and knock you the hell out especially because we've seen with, with Rafael Dos Anjos that 
he can be knocked out, you know, a couple times. Where he got he took that one shot from Eddie Alvarez, kind of changed his whole world. Uh, there was that fight uh, way back in the day against Jeremy Stevens, where he's beating him for the entire fight, and then at the start of the third round, Jeremy Stevens just loads up and like comes running across the cage like he's throwing a baseball from right field and knocks him out. And so I guess that was one of my questions at welterweight is can he stand up to those the shots from those bigger guys? And you go in there against Robbie Lawler, who was a pretty good test of that, and you know never really seemed like there were too many scary moments in that for Rafael dos Anjos. Yeah, but you know who will additionally be a test of that? Tyron Woodley will all sure. be another hurdle to get over. But you know you go back to. 2014, obviously for uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, you had the back-to-back losses to Eddie Alvarez and Tony Ferguson uh, last year, but you just look at the wins, and they are Benson Henderson, Nate Diaz, Anthony Pettis, Donald, Donald Cerrone, Tarek Safadine, Neil Magny, Robbie Lawler. Like, pretty good list all the way around, uh, even if you have to hop between a couple of divisions to put all of those together. Uh, I guess if we want to talk about Robbie Lawler, uh, we need to address the injury. Although it's kind of, I feel like talking about the mid fight or pre-existing injury, whatever this happened to be, is a slippery slope in this sport. Right. But I mean, because it's also like, uh, and people seem to do this a lot to Rafael Dos Anjos, but it's also like, remember when he fought Anthony Pettis and kind of like nailed him right in the eye early on. And then it was like, okay, well, Pettis' vision is compromised. But it's like, yeah, because of something his opponent did. Like that, you know, you get credit for that. If it's one thing if you come in there with an injury, but then again, there's the old Chad Dundas adage: uh, if you fight hurt, don't bitch. If you if you want to bitch, don't fight. I think maybe I missed you that one. You ballparked it, but you know, you yeah. had the gist of it. Yeah, uh, but I still feel like, you know, you go in there and if the guy hurts you in the fight, that is partly what he's there to do. That's fighting. That's yeah, what, that's the object of it. Uh, and I think that we we still don't really have an answer to that, right? Robbie Lawler didn't want to talk about it after the fight. Classic Robbie Lawler. Robbie that, Lawler that whole interview. Did really you hear want that? To talk about anything after just, any fights, but particularly <laughs> after this one. You could hear Mike Bond, a guy from MMA Junkie, being like, "Did you know when in the fight it happened?" And he's like, "Yes." And he's like, what, "Would you tell us?" No, I don't really want to. And you know, he could just all the time, like that. He has that classic interview style where you're always there's always a long pause afterwards because you're thinking, well, surely he's going to say something else. I don't want to cut him off if he's going to go <laughs> on. Uh, but look, one of Rafael Dos Anjos' main weapons in this fight was the low kick. He punished uh, Robbie Lawler's lead leg every time he got the chance. Uh, it looked like maybe a knee was starting to bother Robbie Lawler as this fight went on, but we don't know if it was, you know, just a grappling exchange where it got caught up or if it was something that happened in training or if it was a combination of all three. Maybe the the low kicks did take their toll. Um, and I guess it's the kind of thing where if you have a Robbie Lawler-centric worldview, you can say, well, he was hurt. Rafael Dos Anjos couldn't even put him away, even though he was hobbling around out there. But that's super unfair to Dos Anjos, and I think – uh, for the purposes of this, this this discussion, you just kind of need to give the guy his propers and say that he went out there uh, and put on a dominating performance against Robbie Lawler and now is on to sort of bigger and better things. Also, you might do well to ask yourself who has gone out there and really put Robbie Lawler away, right? I mean, Tyron Woodley landed that one big punch uh, and knocked him out. Uh, and then you got to go back a long way, I believe all the way back to Nick Diaz knocking him out Uh at UFC 47 to find another like knockout loss for Robbie Lawler. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Other than that, you know, he's been submitted a few times and everything, but other than that, the guy, this is a guy who, uh, even if he's not having the greatest of nights has a pretty good chance to make it to decision. 
Well, let's talk about what the future may hold for Robbie Lawler, because this is a guy who turns 36 in a few months. His first UFC fight was in 2002. Uh, this was his 41st total professional fight, I believe. And obviously a guy who uh, has become a quasi-legend uh, during his high-profile MMA career, which included a run in the UFC, a run in Elite XC, a run in Strike Force. And then the second stint in the UFC, which started back in 2013 and has kind of really been the one that cemented Robbie Lawler as some kind of all-time great because he comes back, he's fighting in the welterweight division, uh, he has the, the feud with Johnny Hendricks over the 170-pound title, ultimately uh, wins the UFC welterweight title over Hendricks at UFC 181 uh, and, you know, has had a real kind of late career resurgence as we've seen uh, from a, from several guys in this UFC landscape, but now he's just one and two, you know, in his last three fights, the last few years, he's definitely started to slow down a little bit just in terms of how often he goes out there and performs. So what are we thinking about Robbie Lawler moving forward and what kind of niche he may fill inside the octagon? Yeah. Did you see the stat about, uh, about the total strikes that he's accepted since yes. the beginning of 2013. Yeah. I did. And it like was like the one of the most hit fighters. He, well, he came into this fight having absorbed more significant strikes over that period than any other fighter. And obviously it didn't get any better for him in the wake of this fight. Yeah. But it also, I think we're definitely nowhere near a point when you can't just match Robbie Lawler up against pretty much anybody Sounds fun in the welterweight division. And we're still going to get jacked for it because you know the way the guy fights. Like, I mean, if, if they announce right now Robbie Lawler versus Mike Perry for the next one, hell yeah, would watch that motherfucker. Who's not going to watch that fight? You know, it, but I do think that that's, you know, maybe depending on where he thinks that he wants to be in his career, a lot of guys, we can get excited about the idea of them as just a just for the hell of it fun fight kind of guy. And they're like, wait a minute. No, I'm trying to be the best in the world. I'm not just out here like, you know, throwing away brain cells like confetti for uh, somebody's cheap entertainment. Uh, it depends kind of, I guess, what he thinks of as like where he's trying to get to. But if he wanted that role, if he wanted to kind of get into the, hey, he's the guy you can always book and guarantee that you're going to get yourself a fight out of it, that job is open for him. Yeah, uh, and he's clearly, he, Robbie Lawler is the kind of dude where we think he's just going to keep fighting because that's what he does. Uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to a, a wider discussion of the welterweight division, which I think uh, plays nicely off this first round. Ben, this week my Are You Fucking Kidding Me uh, goes out to Michael Bisping and former... Uh, Bisping manager uh, and Wolf Slayer MMA founder Anthony McGann. As you might have seen this uh, Stephen Morocco story over there on MMA Junkie talking about uh, how Michael Bisping had been ordered by a judge in the UK after an 11-day trial, which sounds just long as hell to me, but he's been ordered to pay. We got in trouble for this pound to euro uh, yeah. conversion a few weeks ago. This is a pound to dollars conversion 320,000 pounds which equates to approximately $426,313 dollars uh, in back pay earned between 2005 and 2011 my are you fucking kidding me it kind of goes out to the judge i guess it goes <laughs> out to bisping and mcgann for getting in a scuffle allegedly outside the court classy i just want to read some stuff that the judge had to say which to me just Kissing the fingers, total UK judge stuff. 
It says, I'm reading from the, the Stephen Morocco story. It says, yet Salter, who is the judge, Judge Richard Salter, chastised both the former colleagues for their behavior during the proceeding, with Bisping, quote, tailoring and trimming his evidence to suit his case, calling the fighter's recollection of Wolf's lair, quote, incredible and untrue, and, quote, a confected story. What? Confected story? Yeah, like cotton and candy. He's... Salter called evidence of McGann's previous business relationship with, with Bisping, quote, recent fabrications and plainly untruthful. Mr. Bisping was also a knowing participant with Mr. McGann in the scheme to defraud the Australian tax authorities by overstating Mr. Bisping's expenses in 2010 and 2011, which, classy. And then the judge comments on the scuffle outside the courtroom, which he said illustrated, quote, a degree of ill feeling. Are you fucking Indeed. kidding me? Fucking it sure kidding does. Me. You know, what does this do to your perception of the other uh, apparently still open case against Michael Bisping that he might have attacked like a teenager at a 24-hour fitness over a uh, dispute over weights? Because the guy who will get into a scuffle outside the courtroom with somebody he's involved in legal action with uh, kind of paints a picture. Yeah, not a great look. Although maybe if there's one thing he doesn't have to worry about, it's that an assault trial should take six months if this one went <laughs> 11 days. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? Did you happen to see your boy Mike Perry, who has been dubbed uh, by this week's one of this week's uh, letter writers, Andrew Millington, uh, by with his new nickname, Call Brogo? Solid. Yeah. Another Game of Thrones-centric nickname. I look on the social medias before this fight, before uh, Mike Perry's fight with Santiago Ponzinibbio, which I know we'll discuss a little more in round two. Mike Perry is there in his hotel room before weigh-ins uh, in a portable sauna suit that makes him look like a space alien from a 1960s TV show. Yep. Like he's just on some Mork and Mindy kind of shit out there. Just his head sticking up out of this, like... You know, space gray portable sauna suit while his girlfriend streams him live like on like Facebook live uh, and he is answering questions and somebody asks, will you freestyle for us? Freestyle rap? Yeah. Okay. And you know he's not going to say no to that. Has Mike Perry ever said no to anything in his life? Uh, so I guess my are you fucking kidding me goes out to kind of everybody here because of this just confluence of events where Mike Perry always already seems to live his life like it's just a stream of consciousness kind of thing. Then while he's dehydrated with his just his head sticking out of this machine that takes water from his body, that's when you want to ask him to just flow for you. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? How was it though? How was his rap? Uh... I recall his rap informing me that my mom sucked his cock and liked it a lot. Oh, wow. Well, that's kind of a slant rhyme. Yeah. There were a lot of slant rhymes going on. How would you if compare it? If you're a purist, it... maybe this was not the flow for you. How would you compare it to the 10-minute Black Thought freestyle that we sent out in the Breakfast of Champions this past week? You know, they were they offered different things. Okay. Played to different crowds, perhaps. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two.
will Chad, in part because of what we saw at UFC on Fox 26 and in part because shit's just getting wild, welterweight is a wilderness right now. Welterweight just feels like kind of anything can happen, and it's all pretty interesting, and you don't even need the title to be involved for it to be interesting, which is a good thing because Tyrone Woodley, who looks out upon this veritable sea of interesting matchups and decides, I don't see anything I'm really too hyped about, I'm going to go get shoulder surgery, he's going to put the belt out of commission for a little while. Now, usually, I'm looking at the UFC playbook right now. Uh, let's see, page 14. Yeah, uh, do, 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 carry the one. Interim title. That's what I came up with here. That's what the UFC almost always does in this kind of situation. You got a bunch of guys you can make interesting fights between. You pull an interim title out of the supply closet. You throw it in there. God damn it, I do not want to see them do that because it feels like you've already kind of depleted the value of UFC belts with stuff like that. And you just don't need it. I feel like there's so many interesting, fun things you can do at welterweight right now. Am I alone here? It's funny that you would imagine a UFC document longer than like three paragraphs. <laughs> uh, but I think I agree with you, man. Like, and I, I think the, the big, uh, the deciding factor for me is like, I'm not, th- I'm not sure what an interim title would get you at this point. Like, if you're going to have Rafael Dos Anjos fight Darren Till, does that fight get somehow sweeter for you if the interim welterweight title is on the line? No. Cause not really for me. Uh, and I think, if anything can be said of, of a wild 2017 in the world of the UFC, I think it was the year where we finally saw uh, a, the, you know, a clear line of delineation between the title and between uh, what is interesting. You know, for a long time, the, the UFC's divisional rat race was very title-centric, which uh, a, a lot of us, perhaps myself included, purists of the sport, really enjoyed about it. Uh, now we've started to see a couple of divergent sort of uh, ways of thinking about that. And at this point, uh, clearly in the WME IMG era, uh, you know, what is interesting is, is going to get uh, the nod of approval over simply a championship fight. But I think it, welterweight has a lot of super interesting stuff going on right now. And I would say unless Tyron Woodley is going to be out for a period that might be described as Conor McGregor-ish, uh, we don't need an interim title because all of these matchups could be just as interesting without one. Yeah, and you look at UFC on Fox 26, you had five welterweight fights on that thing. No title at all in the picture. Uh, and you see a lot of talent. I mean, even on the, the prelims, you see Nordin Taleb go out there and just starch Danny Roberts in less than a minute. Uh, there's Then you get like guys like Colby Covington, who is just going to try to piss off people all the way until we have to care about him. Does it seem to you like Colby Covington maybe doesn't understand the difference between promoting himself in what you would say is a heelish kind of way and just like just being a jerk? You could have stopped at Colby Covington doesn't understand. Okay, all right. You know, and I think there's an interesting parallel, or maybe not a parallel, but like a contrast you can draw between Colby Covington and Mike Perry, Call Brogo, because... They both are, like, part of their appeal is based on this, you know, this big, like, in-your-face personality, except that Colby Covington seems to be doing it, like, in a calculated way, like, as if he's just figured out, like, all right, here's a way I will force people to have some kind of opinion on me, uh, and it feels really contrived, and, like, he's just looked at what has worked in the past and is doing that now, whereas Mike Perry seems to be not thinking about it at all. Right. But and yet, even though Colby Covington seems more contrived, it, it's it almost seems like there's no point to what Colby Covington is doing. Like you look at 
the big headline grabbing stunt of this week where he posted a bunch of Star Wars The Last Jedi yeah, spoilers. That's just being a dick. Like what I mean maybe he's not doing it for any sort of like promotional reasons but like what is that getting you as a uh an athlete like do you, is does that make you a a marketable bad guy in the landscape of the UFC you think people are going to tune in to watch your next fight cuz they're going to be like oh this is the motherfucker that spoiled that movie i wanted to see like i'm definitely bookmarking that on my streaming device to watch later because i really want to see that guy get his ass kicked no, that's not. You were just a dick online. It doesn't yeah. even mean anything. Well, and a, a dick online about whatever was kind of in the news already, as if like you're just like a living computer algorithm that will just be like, okay, what's what are we talking about this week? Star Wars, okay, Kardashians, whatever. I'll I'll find a way to incorporate that into my routine. Uh, and just whatever in a way that will make people mad at me. Whereas like the flip side of that is Mike Perry seems to be doing it far more effortlessly. And yet at the same time, whatever it is that Mike Perry's doing seems to be, uh, working in terms of like making him a, a figure in the sport that is not only recognizable, but a guy where you're like, Oh, Mike Perry is fighting. I kind of want to watch that. Like he's doing everything right, except for winning the fights. Right. Well, and this one, you know, this was a hell of a fight. Mike Perry and Santiago Ponzinibbio uh, kind of put Santiago Ponzinibbio over. He sure did. Because like, before it was like, who was he? The guy whose name we can't spell. Yeah. The guy who was a punchline for us about like who, what fight kid are people definitely not going to be trying to buy. That was a bad call by us. <laughs> and then he goes over there and he's in a fight with Mike Perry, who people care about. And that's that's kind of what makes it like, oh, OK, stop what you're doing. Uh, Ponzi and Mike Perry are about to get it on. And you, you go in there, you watch the fight, and it's just a good, solid fight from both guys. Like a good uh, back-and-forth effort. Santiago Ponzinibbio wins and kind of elevates his status. And now you're thinking about, like, all right, he's, he could be close to a title eliminator fight here. You know, you put him up against somebody like Darren Till or something, and now you're in business. All right, I'm going to give you a selection of young, up-and-coming welterweight fighters. And I want, if let's say you had to spend the next year on a desert island. Okay. Which one of these guys would you want to watch fight? You can only watch one guy's fights because that's the okay with net but neutrality watch, dead. All right. The only this package is, that you can get will involve you watching the fights of one man. This is weird, but all right. Colby Covington. Uh huh. Darren Till. Mm hmm. Santiago Ponzinibbio. Okay. Kamaru Usman. Oh, okay. And Mike Perry. I say Darren Till. I think that's a solid choice. The fifth Beatle. It's probably also going to be the most expensive package, but like. I think it's the right choice. Is that really my big concern on the desert island? Well, let's just say you have enough. Is there drinking water? Yeah, you're good. Okay. There's just nobody else there. And a device that only shows the fights. I don't know. I didn't think it through, man. Yeah. Okay. What's your choice here for this very plausible I would, scenario? I would probably also take Darren Till. Either that or uh, maybe Mike Perry. Just because you know you're going to get a... You're going to get some pleasing action out there if you got Mike Perry. Okay, here's my question, though, is do I only have the ability to watch the fights and not, like, read any of the, like, before and after stuff? Because I feel like at some point, if you're following Mike, just Mike Perry, you know, he's going to show up with, like, another weird tattoo, like, on his eyelids or something. And you're going to be like, what? When did that happen? Uh Then... You know, it's just going to get weirder and weirder from there, and you're not going to have any kind of backstory to fill you in on what's happening outside the cage. You're going to have to try to piece it together. I'm going to get back to you on that because we've already uh, followed this example further down the rabbit hole than I thought we were going to. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to think that over, 
and I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. During a, uh, the next episode. Also, if you just watch Darren Till and you have no one else to talk to, and this is your only connection to the world, at what point when they go when they rescue you, do you get on like the boat speaking in a Liverpool accent? Yeah, probably it would. It would probably. Uh, you wouldn't even notice it. No, you probably wouldn't. Uh, any of these guys seems like the biggest threat to Tyron Woodley at this point. I mean, I guess we we probably will get Dos Anjos Woodley depending on when he comes back from his surgery. But you're starting to see this interesting crop of young fighters sort of take the place, maybe, of guys like Robbie Lawler and Damian Maya and Carlos Condit, who is about to have his comeback, but all the same uh, is probably should be considered as a you know, the previous generation, which one of these young kind of out of the blue welterweights has the brightest future? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I would like to see a little bit more of Darren Till before I make that determination because he does have like good size and power for welterweight and that, you know, if he has like the wrestling chops and everything to deal with somebody like Tyron Woodley, then yeah, maybe when he's ready, that could be a really tough matchup. But again, I, I have to circle back to saying like, Woodley should be really embracing what's going on at welterweight. I agree. It, yeah. It seems like he's doing the opposite because it seems like you have so many interesting, like not only interesting fighters and fighting styles, but interesting personalities, uh, which is exactly what Tyron Woodley needs because people do not find him largely to be an interesting personality. Uh, a lot of his, uh, t- t- uh, title defenses have just completely sucked to be perfectly honest. He needs something like this and it's right there. And the thing he's talking about is giving up his belt and going to chase after George St. Pierre. And you're just going to like, man, it's right in front of you. It's served up if you would just embrace it and get involved a little bit. And it seems like he doesn't want to do it. Yeah. And Tyron Woodley is a, is a guy that I think we've both liked a lot in the past. He seems like a, a, a smart guy. Yeah. A, as a person, like him a lot. Likeable guy. Good guy to, to, to talk to. Obviously, a, a, an on air talent with the UFC. Uh, and the title reign itself just, it's, it's quizzical. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with Tyron Woodley at this point, but I agree with you. Uh, he could do a lot worse than to embrace like this new generation of, of up and coming fighters and, and to try to get out there and mix it up with them a little bit in public. But like you said, it doesn't seem like he's, he's super interested in that, especially with the guy going to have shoulder surgery. Now would be a great time for him to, uh, you know, fill a notebook with ideas for when he comes back. (laughs) There you go. Conor McGregor style. Anyway, that's going to do it for round two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, UFC 219 took a long time to come together, but now that we have it, it looks like a nice little card to close out 2017. Of course, your main event for the women's featherweight title, uh, Chris Cyborg versus Holly Holm, a fight that I think we can all agree on despite the uh, recent missteps or or maybe underwhelming recent uh, resumes of the two fighters in it. You had Chris Cyborg spent most of this year uh, squabbling with the UFC, as is her uh, habit at this point. Seems like she'll spend most of her career that way also. She did uh, make it to the cage at UFC 214 uh, in July to beat Tanya Evinger to claim the vacant featherweight title after it was stripped from Jermaine Durandamy. Holly Holm came into this year on the heels of three losses in a row, uh, but then got what you might call a rehabilitating knockout victory over Betch Cohea. 
uh, in June. And so she vaults into this 145-pound uh, title fight. Um, what's your hype level for this? Because I think you could say that despite the fact that both of these women have been a little bit down or a little bit uh, inactive, you still got two really good fighters, two really accomplished athletes about to do the damn thing for this championship. Yeah, I think once we get past what our level of expectation usually is for the UFC's year-end card, and the it doesn't hurt or it doesn't help things that the UFC also for a while was setting it up. Like this would be one of the fights on the card. Um, there was going to be something big added. And so it kind of got everybody's hopes up a little bit. And then when you said, Oh no, wait a minute, this is actually it. This is, this is what we're giving you. Uh, it, couldn't help but feel like a letdown, but I think once you get past that and you actually think about what this fight is, then yeah, you got to get hyped for it because while Cyborg has looked just kind of unfuckwithable for like the last few years, if you ask me who in the UFC right now has like something to offer her, like a, some kind of interesting new challenge, Holly Holm's right there at the top of the list, especially because I think one of the things that we've seen with Holly Holm in the past is like, yeah, good striker. If you if she's in a fight where she has to be the one coming forward and providing the offense, then she's not always that exciting to watch. If she's in there against somebody who will come after her, however, then it's a different story. And Cyborg is the person who will come after you. I mean, she loves to have that like kind of pressure style to try to draw you out so she can counter. Uh, but she has no problem moving forward and trying to throw them hammers at your head. The MMA career of Holly Holm is a weird one when you think about it. Like, you know, her first seven fights on the independent circle obviously provided some impressive knockouts. And even before she arrived in the UFC, uh, I think she was a person that hardcore fans looked at and, and were like, oh, obviously she deserves to be on the big stage. She might be uh, a test for Ronda Rousey. She's a person we would really like to see have that fight. And then, of course, she gets to the UFC and has a couple of somewhat underwhelming performances. And then at UFC 193, uh, totally takes a hammer to everything that the UFC thought it knew about the women's MMA landscape and knocks out Ronda Rousey in the second round. Uh, and at that point, with Holly Holm, you feel like she's poised to be kind of a big deal in the UFC until she promptly turns around and loses three fights in a row. Uh, so right now, she heads into this title fight with Chris Cyborg, officially 0-1 in the UFC women's featherweight division. Uh and I'm just not sure exactly what to make of her. I mean, I think you, you sized up like her, uh, the book on Holly Holm correctly in that when she fights someone who just is aggressive and comes forward, she can be really devastating. But when she has to be the spark in the fight, like sometimes she struggles and sometimes her fights turn out to be more tepid than you think they're, they're going to. What would it do for her career, in your opinion, if anything, to beat Chris Cyborg here? Because then she, you know, effectively has beaten like the two most dominant women in the history of the sport. If she beats Ronda Rousey and Chris Cyborg. Yeah. I, I mean, that would be huge, but I also feel like for experienced observers, there would be a little bit of like, wait a minute, I'm not going to get too excited just yet because I've been on this train before and I'm, I'm kind of anticipating the letdown. I, but I mean, if you could say like, Hey, I beat Ronda Rousey when she was kind of at her peak. And then I beat Chris Cyborg when she was at, at hers right there. I mean, that's a major career accomplishment. Uh, but then I wonder what would happen because the UFC right now doesn't seem that interested in actually having a division at women's featherweight. You know, like it seems interested in having a Chris Cyborg show and then we'll kind of like fill in people as we go. But it doesn't seem like we're having a whole lot of uh, interest in seeing non-title fights in that division. So 
what happens if it's if Holly Holm is your champion? Who do you get to fight? Or do you, are you just you know uh, treading water for a Chris Cyborg rematch at that point? I have no idea what would happen after that. Yeah, it's definitely a weird situation because there doesn't really seem to be a featherweight division per se. I mean, you could always take somebody like Kat Zingano, I think, and and match her up with the winner of this fight and and come up with something fairly interesting, no matter who is the champion. But uh, it does bring a really weird kind of like mix and match vibe to the women's 145 pound division, which is not something that you normally get in the UFC. Usually, you have like a a, a fairly structured, fairly straightforward title picture, and and uh, you know people jockeying for position. Uh, on a set of clearly defined, although uh, extremely questionable rankings. And you don't even get that with the featherweight division. So uh, I think that there are legitimate questions about if that will hurt or help the division, you know, to, to like kind of have a thing where you're basically pulling names out of the hat and saying, all right. Or you're basically just doing stuff where it's like, all right, who wants to be the women's bantamweight who goes and, and plays featherweight for a while? And I think if Holly Holm is the champion up there, I think you might find a lot more willing uh, participants to get in that. But then it will just seem like you have like basically two parallel divisions that are basically the same in featherweight and bantamweight. Especially if you get people – like I think Kat Zingano is somebody who definitely will pop up in that picture. But then it's just like, okay, what are we doing? Are we just having like the same fights but they don't have to cut weight as much and it's a different belt? I don't know. We got 12 stoppage wins in a row. For Chris Cyborg at this point, 13, if you count the uh, the TKO she had over Hiroko Yamanaka in 2011, which was turned into a no contest after Cyborg tested positive for stenozolol. Nailed uh, it. Stenozolol. Is that, is that close? Sure. Uh, how do you think we will remember her as a fighter? Because, like, she has, Cyborg has this really weird situation where she's, like, the most dominant fighter in her sport and yet her career for a long time has been typified by inactivity and like squabbling with her promoter which man maybe that just makes her like uh, the perfect example of combat sports right she's a supremely talented athlete who should be an enormous star and is like a, a pretty big star uh within women's mixed martial arts but it feels like you could do a lot more with her if it wasn't you know, one fight on six months off when she's her contract is going to be voided and we need to come to terms and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we're going to walk up to the cliff every single time we have to book her for a fight. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like uh, when you ever are reminded of Chris Cyborg and the, just the the phenomenon that she represents, it's easy to get really excited about her just because the the promise of that sheer terrifying overwhelming power is something that everybody gets into. I mean, it's why heavyweight still endures as a draw, even when it's been just a shit show at times. Still, you get somebody in there that looks like they can just go in there and smash somebody's face. Yeah, you're going to get excited about that. And she is the only fighter really kind of left uh, in women's MMA that can give you that. Uh, I, I think also, though, one of the things about Chris Cyborg is – Remember before when she beat Gina Carano and it was kind of like, okay, she can kind of be a division killer because the old way of thinking was like you got to have the pretty person at the top and if you let uh, you know a monster like Cyborg smash your pretty person, then the whole show falls apart. And it does seem like at least we've moved somewhat away from that. Like now 
there's way more of an embrace of cyborg. Uh, it, I think you're right that it doesn't help if no one knows what we're going to do with her next. And there are these long stretches, uh, in between our fights, but it does seem like fans are way more into this, the idea of like a cyborg versus anyone, which is a good thing since that's all that division is based on. Yeah. I guess there's been some, some, some progress in, <laughs> in that, uh, in that, situ- in that regard. But, uh, yeah, it just feels like if you promoted Chris Cyborg as the most dominating athlete in her sport and she just kept knocking people out, uh, you could really get somewhere, especially now that it stands to reason that if you do, if you are able to put together a string of fights for Chris Cyborg in the UFC at this point, it's going to be over people that at least hardcore fans of the sport have some, uh, you know, experience with, some recognition of, and that she's not just kind of uh, mix and matching with the Jan Finneys of the world, uh, as was the case back in, in Strike Force. At this point, you're going to get Tanya Evinger, Holly Holm, maybe Kat Zingano, uh, people that we know and people that have proven themselves to be, uh, good fighters in their divisions. And if Chris Cyborg smashes them and rolls right through them, then, uh, her legend just becomes greater because we know that, you know, it wasn't just a situation where she was being served up tomato cans that she's actually, uh, as good as as we thought she was. You want to take a guess what the odds look like for this fight? I was just going to ask you uh, what the odds were. I guess you know what? I bet the odds are pretty close. I bet it is a. Uh, I bet Holly Holm is plus one fifty. Ply, try plus three twenty. Holly Holm is plus three twenty in this fight. That's right. Good lord. Well, do you have twenty bucks? You never want to see if again. You had twenty dollars. You never wanted to see again. I would say the three to one return on that money would be worth uh, taking the risk that the kids are going to get one fewer Christmas present, <laughs> as long as that's all it is. Yeah. Well, uh, at Cyborg going off at around minus three fifty. I mean, the people who make the odds are smart at this point. Arguably, know more than we do about uh, how these matchups are going to go down. At the same time, three to one odds on Holly Holm seems crazy to me. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. You want to do I, our- I mean, I think th- before we say, I think that one thing you can look at is, uh, remember when Holly Holm was beating Misha Tate and then got taken down and submitted in the end? Yeah. There's somebody who can, uh, punch you back up against the fence, pick you up, slam you down, and then just beat the shit out of you if you don't have a, a good enough escape game <clears throat> on the ground. It might just be Cyborg. True. True. Still, three to one. Get their 20 bucks out of me. And you said the same thing about Josh Emmett, right? And look how that one turned out. Stone cold lead pipe locks over here. Yeah. How how much money did you win off of that one? Lots. Yeah. A lot of money. Okay. Okay. That's good. It's good. I'm glad to hear it. Everybody knows I'm placing those bets on the regular. Yep. Because I totally know how that works. Uh huh. Anyway, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, you referenced uh, a minute ago about how at featherweight, not, you know, we don't get at women's featherweight. That is, we, in the UFC, we don't get the normal like title picture with like some kind of ranking system and everything, uh, even if the rankings are somewhat suspect. Do you know what happens if you go to the UFC website and you click on rankings for the women's featherweight class? What happens? No rankings available for this section. Oh, well, that's that actually what, makes it sound slightly mysterious. That's what it says. But then. If you go to women's flyweight, the newly established women's flyweight, which just became a thing like recently after that season of Tough and just ground its first champion a couple weeks ago, there's a full top 15. Okay, yeah. Plus the champion. I'm just saying that pretty much tells us everything we need to know, doesn't it? You're not even bothered. You just created this new division, already flushed out with the entire ranking system, even though uh, 
it didn't exist in the UFC a couple months ago. Boom, there it is on the website. Women's featherweight, which has been, you know, there's been a belt around for a little while now. No rankings available for this section. I'm just saying, that's pretty much all we need to know. Well, Ben, did you notice uh, this past week that Disney snapped up a bunch of uh, Fox properties? I heard something about that, yeah. Fortunately, uh, all those people at ESPN got laid off, or Disney might not have had the $54 billion to uh, to buy up Fox. Interesting. I'm just saying, what with Disney buying up Fox and, and Fox Sports now being sort of a dwindling en- entity, and these overnight rankings for UFC on Fox 26... Uh, Robbie Lawler and Rafael Dos Anjos did 1.78 million viewers or a 0.6 rating in the coveted 18 to 49 year old demographic, making it, according to Big Dave Meltzer, the lowest number ever for the sixth annual December Network primetime special and the third lowest ever for UFC on Fox. Seems like we have a problem, doesn't it? If you are WME, IMG, and you were shopping around for a new TV deal, just kind of seems like this isn't trending the way you want it to be trending. I'm just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Don't forget next week to look for the co-main event podcast Christmas special. Because that, that'll be a thing. And it'll be, you'll like it. You will like it. Let's say you'll remember it. Memorable. Yeah. Then we'll be back the following week, maybe by, I don't know, Wednesday, early January. We'll check the calendar. Talk about UFC 219 and then look ahead to the year 2018, the year of our Lord 2018. That's terrifying. Terrifying to think about. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So what I'm thinking is maybe while you're gone, I'll just, I could just come by. Feed the cat. You want to come feed the cat? I'm going to need somebody to feed the cat. Feed the cat and just, just kind of hang out for like a few days. Hey man, can on you, end. Can you take care of the Christmas tree? Maybe uh, give the floors a scrub. Have some packages delivered. Maybe have a few people over. Yeah. Just a, a little soiree. Into the gathering.